Last time we did something like this, we went to go see the War Room, and I think nearly 400 of us descended uh, on that theater, and we just had a blast, and so we're doing it again, so save the date, February 21st at 3.30, we're doing it again, we're going to see Risen, and we're going to have a great time, even to think about connecting with other people, maybe uh, that you can talk about it afterwards, like go out to dinner or something like that, and just chat about what you thought, what you saw, be a great time, what you think. Yeah? Oh, yeah? Excited? I mean, I'm excited about it. In fact, I think I saw another movie and saw that trailer like, ooh, I'm going to see that. But now we can see it together. So $6, the tickets will be on sale next week, all right? So uh, Tuesdays at Grace still happening. We're having a great time. Uh, I'm actually doing a series called Practices of Great Lovers. It's not about marriage. My daughter was like, Dad, isn't that about marriage? No, it's about intimacy with Jesus. And really, the whole idea is sometimes what happens in life, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, things like praying, studying, fasting, we wait till a crisis happens, and then we say, I want to pray, I want to read my Bible. Well, listen, spiritual dis- disciplines help you prepare for those things, so that when they happen, you're not caught off guard. Like, you know what? God's got me. How do I know this? Because I've been in his presence, I've been praying, I've been praising, and so when the devil shows up, you're ready. Amen, brother pastor. Yeah. All right. And lastly, we've got a new members class that's going to be next week, uh, the 31st. And so sign up for that. If you're interested in being a member, a member we'd love to have you uh, be a part of our body in official capacity. So you guys ready? One, two, three, Stand up. Say. All right, turn your neighbor and welcome So, when Norflet says, amen, brother pastor, is that like, can I be brother pastor too? Is that all right? I didn't know if that was just, you know, something only got to call you. 
We're both brothers. Okay, I get to be brother pastor too. That's a good thing. Hey, good morning. I got to share some really cool news with you. Uh, we had a donor come to us a while back and give us some money. Um, and they contacted us and said, we would really like you to shift some of that money into impact. And so as of today, we are at $558,000 towards the goal. That's worth clapping for. Um, it's already pretty much twice as much as we've ever done in these impact campaigns. Cool to see God showing up. But what that means uh, is that the construction is going to start particularly in this room. Um, so it will start the minute we get the permits from the city of Detroit. So if you are a praying person, amen, there you go. Um, or if you work at the city of Detroit, uh, either one, no, but we need to get our permits. The minute we get our permits could even be in a week or so. Um, at that moment, you're going to be inconvenienced a little. So I'm telling you now so that you know, um, to all of you sitting up there, I love you. Um, come on down and join us. Uh, but as soon as they start construction, the balcony is going to be closed. So when you come in, you'll have to come through the downstairs. So we'll, we'll close the elevator. We'll close the stairs going up. Now we'll keep them open because the fire marshal makes us keep them open. But we're going to ask that you enter the building through the main floor. So if you come in here and you're sitting in the wings, maybe you come in on the outsides. It's just going to be a little inconvenient while we get the construction done. Uh, but I just want to let you know that that's coming here in the next couple of weeks. We'll start working on the chapel as well. And we even have enough money to begin working on some of the L rooms. So pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. I uh, also wanted to let you know, uh, we have um, about 150 kids up north right now for the big chill. Um, I'm wearing their colors in support of them. Grace youth. So our junior high and high school kids are up there. Been talking to the small group leaders uh, via text. And what I've heard consistently is we are having some great conversations with these kids. So I just uh, want you to encourage you to keep praying for them, pray for their safety as they come back. But it's an awesome thing to see that many kids doing what they're doing. So grab your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter three. Jonah chapter three, we are in week four of the series that we've called Overboard. And we've tracked with Jonah as he heard the word of the Lord. And God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to call out against them. And Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. So he went down to the sea and he boarded his ship and headed in the opposite direction. We saw that God sent or hurled the storm against the ship to get Jonah's attention. We saw that Jonah got thrown overboard as a way of calming the sea. He said, the only way to do that is to chuck me overboard. So the sailors, after they meet Yahweh, throw him overboard. And then a large sea creature, whale, a fish, we don't know what it was, came, swallowed Jonah. He's in the belly of this creature for three days. He cries out to the Lord and the Lord has this fish, whale, whatever it was that he had prepared in advance, spit him up onto dry land, the passage says. Okay, so that's where we are so far in the story. It's, it's post all of that that we pick up the story. And, and what we're going to walk through today is just five verses. Chapter three, we're going to read verses one through five. And these five verses are going to really inform us more clearly on the heart of God. It's also going to help us to see how we can live out our lives in a way to, to unleash the spirit of God, not only in our own lives, but in the life of the church community. So um, there's a lot for us to take out of these five verses. Jonah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it a message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. In other words, three days to walk across the city. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that as we move through these five verses that you would guide my words, that you would soften our hearts to hear truth. Lord, our prayer every week is that we would interact with the living God and that we would leave different than we came. Lord, I pray that you would stir in deep places in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 3, it's as if the story begins again. It is, in essence, a restart for Jonah, a a do-over, if you will. How many of you look back in your life and you wish there was some place where you could have a do-over, a restart, right? And so we we look at this, and if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1 and you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, you see that they actually start almost exactly the same way. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's 1-1. Now, the word of the Lord came again to Jonah is 3-1. There is this almost mirror image of the story starting again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this is a reminder for us of God's grace, of God's patience, of God's relentless pursuit of us, God's determination that God would continue to call out to Jonah even after he already called out to him, even after Jonah said no to him, God comes back and he calls out to him a second time. One of the observations that I made the very first week is that we can look at Jonah and we can be critical of Jonah. We can say things in our spirit like, how could Jonah be so disobedient? I mean, he hears God speak and he just willfully disobeys God. How could this guy be so disobedient? We can say that, but I think that's a, that's a mask for us. That's almost a, a way of, of deflecting what's really going on. Because the better question is, how am I just like Jonah? God said to Jonah, go there, but instead he went there. God said, do this, but instead he did did that. And the question is, where has God told me to go here and I've gone there? Where has God told me to do this and, and I've done that? How am I like Jonah? The truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we all fall short. We all fall short of living into and living out of the clear directives of God. There's all kinds of passages and scriptures that are difficult for us to live into, and we, we fall short of that. We know exactly what we're supposed to do at times, and we just choose not to do it. And the power of verse 1 in chapter 3 is the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is always ready to begin again. God offers second chances. He offers us additional chances to get it right. There are so many places in my life where I look back and I thank God that that I got a second chance to get it right, whether it's with my family and as a father, as a husband. There's so many places where I've messed up and I've come back to God and God's given me a second chance to do things the right way. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of do-overs. And I, for one, am in desperate need of do-overs. So let me ask you again, where in your life do you need a do-over? Where in your life do you need a second chance? 
This entire story of Jonah is a reminder of God's grace, of God's forgiveness, of God's relentless pursuit of us. God calls us again and again, nudging us, calling us to do the right thing. He calls us to be followers over and over. This is a book about the grace of God and the the grace of God is an amazing thing and it ought to propel us to do the right thing. The more we experience God's grace in our lives, the more we understand how much we've been forgiven, the more we really comprehend the love of God, it ought to propel us, it ought to move us to do the right things before God. The the way God loves us ought to propel us to, to, to live in a way that honors God. But the truth of the matter is, if we're honest with ourselves, God's grace sometimes becomes an excuse for abuse. We have this dangerous tendency to say to ourselves, well, it's okay, God will forgive me. It's okay if I do that. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of second chances. It's okay if I do it. And can I tell you, this is dangerous thinking. The apostle Paul knew that this was human tendency. He knew it would be our tendency. He knew it was the tendency of the people in Rome when he was writing this. So in Romans six, he says these words. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Are we continue to to do what's wrong? Are we to continue to, to do whatever we want to do? Are we supposed to continue to test God just so that we can test his grace? Chapter or verse two, he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? Or said another way, all of you who are followers of Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The key to this whole passage are those last five words, that we would walk in the newness of life. What Paul is saying is when you said yes to Jesus, you actually became a new creation, that something was regenerated in you, something that was changed in you, and the Holy Spirit actually becomes this indwelling force within you, helping you to do what's right before God, helping you to know what's right, to do what's right, helping you to understand when the word of the Lord comes to you. And so you have all of this going for you. And what he's saying is you can have all this and you can still choose to sin, but when you do that, those two things are incompatible. You cannot live out this new life that's granted to you in Christ and still willfully disobey God. Now, I'm going to kind of go somewhere here that I I really want you to listen to, and I I would prefer not to get any letters later about this one because it's, it's a little bit complicated, but here's the deal. When you say yes to Jesus, when you have that moment in your life where you know you can't get it done on your own, you say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you. I, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Through faith, you're saved, not by works that no, no one can boast. So you're saved. Your eternal destiny is secure. So just know that's, that's what we believe. That's what we teach. Your eternal destiny is there. You can say yes to Jesus and you are saved. But in the same time that you are saved, if you choose to sin, you will still bring destruction into your daily life, into this life you will bring. You get it? So there's still this sense of security. You get to go to heaven, but you can still bring pain and suffering into your daily life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? So what does that passage mean? 
Well, here's the deal. When we look at the biblical passages, and I, I explain this a lot of times in my office to people when we're talking about, when you look at a biblical passage, there's usually a core meaning. So I usually draw on my whiteboard a target. So if you were to look at a target, there's an inner circle, right? The red circle, what do we call that? The the bullseye, that's right. Well, the, the bullseye, when you look at a, most scriptural passages, there is a core meaning. There's a central meaning to the passage. This is, this is the, the core meaning of it. But then it, the longer you sit with the passage, the longer you meditate on the passage, when you come back to the passage a year later, you see another layer of meaning, what I would call additional truths. And then you come back six months later, 10 months later, and you see more truth. It's like passages of scripture have more and more layers of truth. So when the scriptures say the wages of sin is death, or let me give you a different example. Um, you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you, sh you will know Jesus and knowing Jesus will set you free. What's the bullseye of that? What's the central meaning of that passage? That Jesus is the one that saves us from our sin. That if we have sin in our lives and we cry out to Jesus, that through the death and burial and resurrection, the blood of Christ saves us, it redeems us. When you know the truth, you're set free from sin. But if you think about it, living a life that's truthful before other people is a life of freedom. If I'm truthful with you, I'm not bound to my lies. I don't have to figure out all of those things that I said that weren't true and how do I live into that? I don't have to keep this, this burden of a false bravado. I, you know, I, so I've, I've put out an image. It's not really the real image. It's not the truthful image. Now I have to figure out how to live into that. And, and so there's all this bondage that comes with an untruthful lifestyle. So we have a central meaning, a core meaning, and then you have layers of meanings that comes with the passage. So when you read a passage of scripture, it says the wages of sin is death. The bullseye is that in our sin, we're dead. We don't get to heaven. We don't get to God in our sin. We're separated from God. Jesus comes, Jesus dies, Jesus rises again. When we call out to God, the blood of Jesus, we are set free from our sin. That's the bullseye. But the additional layers are, even as a person who has figured out how to walk with God, when I sin, I still bring death into my life. It's not eternal death, it's death in this world. Things are gonna be different because I've chosen to sin. Let me give you an example in the Bible. There's a guy, his name is King David. King David was a pretty prominent character in the Bible. If you remember, he's the boy that, that killed Goliath, right? Remember that story? He, he's uh, the guy that's credited with writing many of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are written by David, a man after God's own heart. He was a great military hero, a, a general of armies, just amazingly successful. I mean, King David is the most known, most popular king of Israel. He is it, you know? But somewhere along the way, King David kind of got off track. He took his eyes off of God and he actually, I would say, drank the Kool-Aid and believed that he was all that in a bag of chips and he could do whatever he wanted to do. And he saw this woman and she was attractive and he said, bring her to me. And, and they got together and she got pregnant. And so he had her husband killed. Now we don't have to go much further to realize he's done some bad stuff, right? We, can we all agree that's sin? A, a few different areas, right? David did some, some bad stuff. And if you read the story, David pretty much thinks he got away with it. He's pretty much okay. And life's going to go on. It's cool. No big deal. Along comes the prophet. And the prophet tells him a story 
It wakes David up to his sin, and David cries out. He says, against you and only you have I sinned, and he asks God forgiveness. And you know what the Bible says? Your sins are forgiven. David asks for forgiveness, and his sins are forgiven. But there's a price to pay. It's not like it's all just gone and it's a rosy thing. This, this baby that this, this woman has conceived, it's born and it dies. And it devastates David. And David's son from, a, from another marriage turns and rebels against him. It actually says your house is going to be divided. David brings all of this chaos. He brings all of this dysfunction into his home. He brings death into what could have been. As a matter of fact, Israel never recovers. It's a divided nation from that point going forward. The wages of sin is death. So if I decide to leave here today and I decide to look at pornography, I invite death into my relationship with Meg. I invite death into my relationship with my kids. You know what? I invite death into this church. Something is going to go away because I've willfully walked into a place that I shouldn't be. My eternal security, okay, it's there, but we can still bring about death. And some of you are thinking, how did we get there? We were talking about this cute little story about Jonah and God's grace. And here's what I want to tell you. We cannot abuse the grace of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Look at verse two, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Say what I tell you to say is what he's saying. Verse three says, So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh. A little different story all of a sudden, right? Before he went the other way, now he's willing to go. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in journey. Verse 2, Nineveh is called a great city. Verse 3, it's called an exceedingly great city. So we know that it was a large city. That could be why it's great. We also know that it was a powerful military city. That could be why it's great. But if you go back and you really dive into the original language, the the Hebrew language, and and most experts would agree, and I, I just love this, what the original language is saying is, now Nineveh was a large city for or to the God, or let me say it differently, Nineveh is God's city. Nineveh is God's city. This is a profound truth because what it means is that Baghdad is God's city and Shanghai is God's city and New Delhi is God's city and Tehran, the capital of Iran, that's God's city and Damascus, you know where the capital of Damascus is? Syria, that's God's city, and Detroit is God's city. This is an amazing truth for us to kind of sink our, our heads and our minds into. I find it reassuring. You see, I don't have to convince God to care about Detroit. I don't have to beg God, would you just show up, God? Would you care about Detroit as much as I do? Right? I, I, sometimes I think we're, we're pleading with God to show up. We're pleading with God to, to want to do something in the cities. And, and this passage tells us, no, these are, these are my cities. God loves the people that are far from him more than we ever could. And what we need to pray is, God, would you give me your heart for your cities? Would you give me your heart for Detroit? Would you give me your heart for Damascus? Right? It would change 
who we are. We don't have to convince God to show up. We have to ask to have God's heart. Jonah hears the call of God a second time. He goes to Nineveh and he cries out and he says these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's fascinating to me how direct the message is and how limited the message is. By all intents and purposes, this is what he said. I don't think he said anything else. I think he said these eight words. He doesn't tell them how it's going to happen. He doesn't tell them who's going to do it. He just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It is so direct. It is so simple a message. A couple things about those eight words, 40 days or 40 in the scriptures. 40 usually represents a time of trial that leads to salvation or change. Right? 40 represents a time of trial or difficulty that leads to salvation or change. So we think about the flood. Was that a trial? I would think so. Right? It was a flood. Right? So it was a trial. It led to salvation or change. Or you think about uh, the 40 days or 40 years of wandering in the desert. Was that a trial? Yeah. Did it lead to salvation or change? For sure. You think about Moses on the mountain. He goes and fasts for 40 days leading to change. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. So what we know about the number 40 is it represents a time of trial that leads to salvation or change. I guess the question we could stop and ask here is where do you need salvation? Where do you need to experience change? Hold on to that question. The second thing that's worth noting in these eight words is that last word that's translated overthrown, it simply means turned. So you get to say 40 days and Nineveh will turn. And that's exactly what happens. When they hear the message, their hearts are turned towards God. But I think this is a play on words. You see, that's not what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted them crushed. Jonah wanted them destroyed. And so God gave them a message that sounded like they were gonna be destroyed. 40 days and you are going to be toast. 40 days and God is going to crush you. 40 days and you'll be overturned. 40 days and you will turn. We'll see as we continue to study that, that Jonah had something different in mind, but God still uses his words. And the question that I, that, that I found myself asking is, this week is, is how could a message that's so simple have such a profound impact? 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. No apologetics, no amazing, eloquent sermon, just eight words, and yet it turns all of the people. Well, we know it's effective because the passage actually says the people believed God and called for a fast, so we're going to talk about that in a minute. So we know it's effective, but why was it effective? It was effective because it was the word of the Lord. Right? There was something profound about what he was saying because it was the very words of God that he was saying to them. But I would also contend that it was effective because God had prepared them to hear that message. And we don't know how, and we don't know what was going on, but what I know to be true is, is God was getting the people ready through whatever circumstances, through whatever things going on there, to hear those eight words and respond because that's what God does. So I told you guys the story two weeks ago where, so when I came to this church and I was just a mess and my marriage was a mess and we just, long before I ever worked here and I walked through the doors and I heard God say to me, welcome home. That was a profound moment for me. That was a defining moment in my spiritual journey. 
But as I reflect on that day at Grace, when I walked in and I heard Welcome Home, I realized that God was doing a whole bunch of work behind the scene, preparing me for that day. He had, he'd begun to do a work in Meg. He'd begun to, to work on my heart through the Holy Spirit, and Meg began to talk to me about it. There was all kinds of things that was softening the, the ground or taking the plugs out of my ear. I don't know what analogy works best, that when I would walk into the church, I'd hear Welcome Home, and those words, just two words, would have a profound impact on me. That's what God does. He prepares the soil so that when his word goes out, it has an effect. This is good news. This actually should be liberating for us because you don't have to be the one to convince somebody of anything. All you have to do is be obedient to say what God tells you to say. I think sometimes we feel like, well, I'm not smart enough. I'm not clever enough. I don't know the Bible good enough. I don't know how to say things as good as Norflet says it. I don't know how to pray like they pray. We, we have all kinds of insecurities that keep us from saying what God is telling us to say. And here, I got a challenge for you. I think everyone in this room knows that God has told them to say something to someone at some point in their lives, and they said no. I just think you felt that nudge. I need to say that. Nah, I don't want to say that. I don't, I don't want to seem weird. I don't want to open up a conversation where I don't know the answers. When we refuse to speak, we miss the invitation of God. The point is to be obedient. Say what God nudges you to say and watch God do the work. Who would ever thought an entire city would turn on eight words? If we trust God to do the work, the lives of people will, will change. It's about God's timing. I had this amazing opportunity to travel to Morocco actually a couple times, but on one of those trips, um, if you don't know, Morocco is a Muslim country. It's illegal to share Christ. Um, it was illegal for us to be there. It was illegal for us to be gathering when we were gathered. But here we are gathered in this room and there's this young man sitting across from me. And I said to him, tell me, how did you come to know Jesus? How did you become a Jesus follower? He said, well, I, I grew up Muslim, of course. And, but for me, the Muslim faith wasn't working. I wasn't happy. I was in a deep depression. It didn't make sense to me. I, I knew it wasn't right for me. And I'd heard about Jesus, but only like little bits and pieces. I really didn't know. I'd never had a conversation ever with anybody about Jesus. I just knew, and you know, Jesus is even part of the Muslim faith. So he had some recollection of, of Jesus, right? So, so he says, I was in a deep, deep depression. And I went to the beach and I was sitting on the beach and I prayed, Jesus, if you're real, if you really are the answer, would you show me? And he said, at that moment, a man walked up to me, a man I'd never seen, a man I'd never talked to. And he said, God sent me to tell you about Jesus. Look, that guy didn't have to be very profound. He probably could have even said something dumb. And this guy still would have got it because it was about God's timing and it was about him being obedient to walk up. And look, he was risking his life to walk up to that guy and say, God sent me to tell you about Jesus. Like, we don't have to worry about going to prison to have these kind of conversations, yet he has a conversation. Now this guy is one of the leaders in the Moroccan church because one person was obedient to just say a few words in God's timing to bring about change. This is profound. This is a portrait of the missional mindset that we need to have as followers of Christ. God loves people more than we do. God loves people who are far from him more than we can ever understand. The cities of the world are God's cities. And he says, I want you to go 
and I want you to tell them about me. I'll prepare the ground. I'll prepare the work. Just go and be, be obedient to say what I tell you to say when I tell you to say it. People will respond. The people of Nineveh, this dark, dangerous, evil place responded. It says in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The people believed God. You know where else we see that language? We see it describing Abraham, the patriarch. It says Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That means Abraham believed and he was saved by his faith. We're saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. The Ninevites were saved by faith. This, this language isn't by accident. It's the exact same language. The Ninevites believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. It says they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When you, when, when they hear the words of Jonah, they call for a fast. And the question is like, what's the deal with fasting? Why do so many people in scripture fast? Why did the people of Nineveh fast? Why did Jesus fast? What's the deal with fasting? Fasting is a way of physically telling God that you are serious, that you are ready to surrender something that is naturally yours. You're giving something that, that God has given to you back to him. It's an act of surrender. It's a way of expressing, I am willing to give up everything for you, even hamburgers, right? Even pizza. Maybe in their day it was even baklava. I don't know what they ate, but it's the only thing I could think of that fit into that sentence, right? It's, a, it's, an, it's an act of surrender. One of the things I read this week that I just loved, this came out of a commentary by Philip Carey, said, fasting is the body's way of praying. You empty yourself out so that God may have mercy, as if your belly itself were crying. Fasting is an act of surrender. It shows, it's a, it's a show of humility. When you read the scriptures, more often than not, it says, he humbled himself and fasted. Not always, but more often than not, it says, he, they humbled themselves or himself and fasted. It's a way of humbling yourself. And you know, the scriptures tell us that we are to humble ourselves. So if you look at James 4.10, it says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you, or your, your Bible might say he will lift you up. Jesus said in Matthew 23.12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. By the way, that's not a good thing. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is drawing this contrast between being self-reliant and being proud and being humble, God-reliant. Here's the bottom line. If you do it your way, if you do it all your way, God will humble you. He's not saying he might. It's pretty direct. Right? Do it your way, God will humble you. But the other side of it is if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. God will lift you up. Who doesn't want to be lifted up by God himself? That's a pretty cool promise. Fasting is one of the ways that we humble ourselves. It is not the only way. It's one of the ways. Confession is a way of humbling yourself. When you sin against somebody, when you say something you shouldn't say, when you, when you found out that you lied, 
Remember that passage, the truth will set you free. And you go to that person and you confess, you know, I shouldn't have said that. It wasn't true, that act of confession. Trust me, that will be a humbling thing, but it will also set you free from. So confession is a, is a way of humbling yourself. Forgiving people is a way of humbling yourself. Serving can be, it isn't always, but serving can be a way of humbling yourself. Praying for God to bless the people that persecute you is a way of humbling yourself. There's all kinds of ways in the scriptures that we are to humble ourselves, but, but here's a spiritual discipline that was put in place by God himself as a way of regularly humbling ourselves before God. Why would we humble ourselves? So that God can lift us up. So they called for the, a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What's the deal with putting on sackcloth? Well, think about our society. Think about clothing, even though I'm wearing a really cool t-shirt, clothing in our society says something. You can see people and know something about them by the clothes they wear. Way more so in ancient world. What people wore often told you what they did for a living. It told you their social status. It told you if they were royalty. There was all kinds of, of things that you could tell about a person by the way they dress. If you go to Jerusalem right now and just watch the wardrobe, the wardrobe will tell you all kinds of things about the, the, the people, what sect they are, how they, how they, sect, CT, I just want you guys to be confused there for a minute. So you, you can tell all kinds of things about people. So, so what happens when you take off those clothes that distinguish your position in society and you put on a burlap sack? Now you're all equals. You've kind of basically said, we're going we're gonna to come before God as one people, no more royalty and peasants, right? No nobility, no, none of that. We're just going to humble ourselves and, and dress alike and come together alike. It's a beautiful picture of, of coming together before God as one people. We're going to see next week how this act of humility unleashes the power of God in, in Nineveh. If you step back from these five verses and you just ask yourself, what can we learn from this? What can we apply into our individual lives and into the life of the church that will unleash the power of God in this place? Who doesn't want the power of God unleashed in this church? What is it that we can do to see God move in a powerful way in ways that we can't even ask, think, or imagine? And I wanna just give you three things that just jump off of the text for me. If we want all that God has for us, we must hear and obey. We must learn to attune ourselves to the voice of God. God is speaking. God is speaking through the body of Christ. God is speaking through your circumstances. God is speaking through the word of God. God is speaking through his Holy Spirit. God is speaking. We just need to learn to listen to what he's saying and not take advantage of his grace be obedient to the things he's calling us to do because in obedience, we're gonna have more life. He's gonna pour out his life in us. Do you know that when you are disobedient, you impede the ability of God to work through you? God is not gonna use you in a powerful way while you are being disobedient in your life. So can we be a people that learn to attune ourselves to God, pay attention to the Holy Spirit and do the things he's calling us to do when he prompts us to say something, are we willing to say it? Even if it's just eight words. We need to be people who hear and obey. If we want all that God has for us, we also need to be people of influence. We have to be willing to engage people who are far from Christ. We saw this in the passage today, this eight words 
by one guy turns an entire city. Detroit is God's city. What if God is asking you to say something that's going to turn more hearts towards God in this city or maybe in another city? Maybe God is calling you to go all the way to Damascus and declare a word from the Lord. Are we willing to be people of influence? If we want all that God has for us, we have to hear and obey. We have to be people of influence and we must, we must be humble because it's God who does the work in us and through us. We must continue to humble ourselves before God and cry out for him to do immeasurably more. The people fasted, the people put on sackcloth. They gave up their worldly positions and came together to see God move. I love the timing of this. It's as if we knew what we were doing and trust me, we didn't, but we're entering the Lenten season. And many of you grew up in a tradition where it's a natural time to fast anyway. It's a natural time to give something up, to to maybe pick something up that helps you to move closer to God. The, The Lenten season is a great tradition. Now, we start the Lenten season on the 15th of February. I know that's not the way the calendar reads normally for Lent, but what we do is a 40 consecutive days leading up to Good Friday. And my encouragement to you is, why not? Why not ask God, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to give up? What do you want me to start doing? How do you want me to enter this Lenten season so that I can have a greater connection with you? What if God is inviting you into 40 days of trial so that you can experience salvation or change? Where do you need change in your life? What's that thing that you just wish you could stop or you could just be free from? Where do you need desperate change in your life? Where do you need freedom? What if this were a season, an invitation from God for 40 days through the Lenten season, just to invite God into into this whole thing and say, God, I want to see you move. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but invite God into that and, and ask him. So that starts on the 15th of February. We would love for you to participate with us in whatever way God is calling you. Now's the time. Start asking God. Hear and obey. Say, God, what do you want me to do? And when he says, I want you to, just obey him and see how he'll show up in that. And he's going to surprise you by by what he asks you to do. I know he will because that's just how God works. What if we follow God in such a way that he would just pour out his favor on us and he would move in ways that's beyond our imagination? The band's going to come up and... And we're going to play some music and we're going to take communion together. Um, But before we do that, let me just pray for you. Lord, I I am so grateful. I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that there could be so much richness in five verses in Jonah. You are a God of second chances. That you desire to do powerful things in us and through us. Lord, would we be a church that receives all that you have for us. May we do nothing to impede the movement of your spirit in this place. Lord, as we enter the Lenten season, may we just hear your invitation and respond to it. So Lord, now even as we take the cup and the bread, show us where you want to bring about change. Show us where you want to bring about salvation. Lord, for the people in the room, just never made the decision to walk with you. I pray they would do it in this very moment. That they would just recognize that they have sinned, that they've wandered away from God. 
they would say, I can't do this on my own, Jesus, and I need you as my Savior. I, I want you in my life. In this moment, would you just pray that prayer if that's you? Lord, I need you. For the people in the room that have been messing around with sin, and they know it, Lord, would they put it aside today? Would they lay it down, and would they invite the Spirit of God to bring about salvation and change in their lives as we take the cup and we eat the bread? Thanks for the gift of this sacrament. Pray that it would do great work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the ushers are going to come. They're going to pass out the communion elements. If you have said yes to Jesus, even if it was two minutes ago, then this is for you. We don't care if you're a member. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's about whether or not you are part of God's family. If you're not, it's okay. You want to just let the elements pass by you. But we will take them together. So good time to just hold the elements and pray. God, where do you want to see change? Where do you want to bring salvation? 